expressed in this podcast did not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Welcome to the Wolf Den, everybody. This is Dan David coming back at you. We have the pack with us today, and by pack, it's the omnipresent sound Carl <laughs> and his chortle. We also have uh, sound Andrew, because that annoys Carl when I give somebody else the moniker, and, and Tick, who does the actual work up there in Michigan. Today with us, we have a very special guest, Commissioner Hester Purse, who was appointed by Donald J. Trump to the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission and was sworn in on January 11, 2018. Prior to joining the SEC, Commissioner Purse conducted research on the regulation of financial markets at the uh, Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She was also senior counsel on the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, while she advised ranking member Richard Shelby and others of the Committee uh, of Security Issues. Commissioner Peirce served as counsel to the SEC Commissioner Paul S. Atkins. She's also worked as a staff attorney in the SEC Division of Investment Management. Commissioner Peirce was an associate at Wilmer Cutler in Pickering, now Wilmer Hale, and clerked for Judge Roger Adwell on the Court of Federal Claims. Commissioner Peirce earned her JD at Yale Law and bachelor's degree in economics at Case Western Reserve University out there in Ohio. So welcome to the show, Commissioner Purse. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I, I want to start with my disclaimer, which is that my views are my own views, not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. Right, right. Well, that's probably a wise choice. So uh, you're, you're an Ohio native. I've seen you talk about that before. You seem to be a very proud Ohio native as well. Oh, yeah. I love Ohio. It's definitely the best state. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to talk about that for a second. Number one, I can, I can verify your Ohio bona fides with one question. Do you know how to play euchre? No. Okay. I don't know how you, to play euchre. You haven't euchre. been back to Ohio in a while. I was back in Ohio last week, and there's a lot more to Ohio than euchre. Okay. I think that might, that might be a different generation of Ohioans. Oh, I, I think we're fairly close generationally, <laughs> but you know, I'm from Michigan and it's not that we look down on Ohio. It's just that we're above them, right? Geographically. First thing I want to talk about is Bitcoin. And, and I want to talk about briefly because there are so many comments out there that people can see that you've made and your opinion is laid out. I have a, a couple of questions about it. You seem to know a lot more about it than I do, which is very reassuring given your position. And in spite of like some of the things I see on Twitter that you're kind of anti-regulation in Bitcoin, that's not what I've heard you say. Maybe you can clear that up. You've basically said we should have regulation to better have enforcement. We're now kind of in the enforcement phase of Bitcoin and regulation may not have caught up to it. Is that your stance or do you have something to say regarding that? Well, I think, first of all, it is important to note that Bitcoin is one is one digital asset. It's one crypto asset, and there are many other crypto assets. And so 
there are questions around how we should approach regulating crypto assets. And you're right that I have taken the position that rather than taking an enforcement first approach, we should be thinking about ways we can build a, a regulatory framework that makes sense. And then it will be easier for people who are trying to comply with the rules to comply with them because they'll know what they are. And then we can enforce after the fact. I certainly am someone who thinks that before we jump to regulating something, we should have a good reason for doing it. Typically, if you have a situation where two people want to voluntarily enter into a transaction, we have to have a good reason for getting in the middle of that. But obviously, in the securities markets, we have lots of rules around those kinds of things. And so to the extent that crypto intersects with our securities markets, then we have to think about, do the existing rules make sense? Should we adjust them in some way? Let's think about the objectives we're trying to achieve with our rules and then figure out a way to practically and pragmatically achieve those objectives. Are there any previews to different rules for crypto or altcoins and things of that nature that you think should be outside of the current rules that we have for investing markets? As you said, we've got a lot of rules out there. If you, if you want to pay attention to them all, there, there are a few. As I look at crypto, it is, it is a bit different. And I, I know that Chairman Gensler, I don't know, for, for better or worse, he kind of got labeled with calling it the Wild West and poker chips. And I'm not sure he totally feels that way. But that was a comment that he made, and he feared that uh, keep bringing these enforcement actions and cases, and there's going to be a problem on lending platforms and trading platforms. And frankly, when that happens, a lot of people are going to get hurt. So is there something specific that the commission is working on that you can talk about? Well, I mean, I wish we were doing rulemaking instead of doing this all in the context of enforcement. What I've suggested is that we think about a disclosure framework for crypto assets, for tokens that make sense, that gets purchasers the information they need, which is a bit different than what you would need if you're buying shares of a company, for example. So let's try to come up with some kind of a tailored regime. Now, you could do that through, we, we have a lot of rules, but you could also iterate on the existing rules using exemptive applications or something like that. Another area that Chair Gensler has focused a lot on and talked a lot about is, is trading platforms. It may be that Congress comes in and decides, you know, the SEC is the right regulator for trading platforms and this is the regime we want you to employ. Or maybe Congress will come in and say, we want the CFTC or some other regulator to regulate trading platforms. So I think a lot within the next year, I think we'll see a lot of developments on the regulatory front and on the legislative front around crypto. I think. Stable coins is another area where it probably that will come from the legislative side that we'll see some movement there. So I think sort of stay tuned um, because this is a this is definitely a developing area. Oh, it definitely is. You know, however, my experience has been in, in lobbying Congress on on issues mostly dealing with China investments, that if we're waiting on them, <laughs> it's gonna be a long wait. And as far as regulating them and who their regulator is, I don't think there's a government agency out there that doesn't think they're the regulator for crypto. <laughs> I mean, the FDA is probably weighing in on this. It's, it's always fun to see the Washington uh, regulators clamoring for jurisdiction. And I think it's important for us as regulators to remember that we ultimately have to do what's best for the American people. And that's why we do take our directives from Congress. 
And we, we should be looking for reasonable ways to allocate jurisdiction without all stepping on top of each other. Right. It just seems logical that the SEC would be front and foremost on this, but until, until there is a definitive answer coming out of the legislative body that is not great at giving us definitive answers, it's still going to be uh, a bit nebulous, I think, which is a shame. Well, and I think one of the reasons that people, some people are not enthusiastic about having the SEC take the lead is that we, we haven't been very proactive and, you know, in a positive way, right? We have taken this, this approach that's been, you know, one-off enforcement actions. And, and so if we want to show ourselves to be the right regulator for some or all of this space, then we, we better step up to the plate a bit. And I, I hope that'll happen. Yeah, well said. One company that, you know, and I know you don't like talking specific companies and, and you probably won't, but it, it, just, it just confuses me is Tether. You have this company that is really making the market. They're saying they're one-to-one with the dollar and they're a stable coin and they historically claim that that's backed in commercial paper and then they've kind of backed off that, especially when you go to the trading desk and with their market valuation, they'd be the largest commercial paper holder in the world and, and nobody's doing business with them. And now they're kind of saying that, you know, hey, we, we have it in commercial paper, we have it with some private individuals, we have it in, you know, in other alternative assets. I read there was a, an investor out there offering a million dollar reward to see who, who backs Tether. Can't the SEC, Tether aside, or any one company aside, come to a company that's really of a systematic size, getting to that size of a, of a market, say, we want to know who's behind you. Well, you're correct that I don't want to speak about any particular company or stablecoin issuer. I, I think what is going on now is that there's a lot of congressional attention on stablecoins. When we think about, I mean, you mentioned that Congress can be slow to act, and there's a reason for that, right? It's, it's intended to take um, account into account a lot of different viewpoints and deliberate and think about what the right approach is. And when you talk about something as large as crypto, that's a very daunting undertaking. Sure. Recently, there was a, a large comprehensive bill introduced by Senators Lummis and Gillibrand, but there have also been some more discreet efforts to regulate specifically stable coins. Mm-hmm. And whether that would be us or the banking regulators is sort of one of the key questions in, in these regulatory efforts. But I think one of the reasons that people are looking at stable coins is they're saying, yeah, there's a relatively clear set of issues that we need to address what's backing the stable coins. And so that's something that I think regulation can be designed or legislation can be designed to address. I suspect we'll see some movement on that issue. And, and part of the reason is you pointed to the systemic risk questions. I mean, I think part of the reason that banking regulators and the president's working group, which is sort of this cross-regulator group, have gotten interested in the issue of stable coins is that they are looking down the road and, and seeing, wow, these things could really become very widely used. By some accounts, they already are, but they could become even more widely used. And so having some insight into what's backing them could be useful. Yeah. I mean, that's basic in any company. Although I will say that, you know, as you might expect, the market has already started working on this problem because people are looking and they're saying, okay, we want to know what's behind you. And so more and more players in the crypto space, whether it's stable coins or others, 
have started to say, yeah, let's give you a little more transparency and show you what's there and show you that it's audited, that someone's looked to see it's there and so forth. So I think you're seeing a dual track. The market is working and then legislators and regulators are working. Our capital markets are extremely flawed, but they happen to be the best in the world by far. They are. And, and the most transparent in the world by far. So my criticism is always underpinned by that. There's second place is nowhere near where we are, where that's concerned. And, and for myself personally, for, for listeners, I have no interest in Tether. Uh, I'm not looking into them. I don't really have any Bitcoin, I, you know, a little bit of an ETF. So it's not really my bag, but Commissioner Peirce has, has said a lot on it. So I did want to talk about some of the bigger claims and issues out there not the least of which I was recently visiting my father, my 78-year-old father in Michigan, and he talked about investing in Bitcoin. My shoulders just went up past my ears. I just, I, you know, when it's getting that prevalent that somebody who clearly doesn't understand anything about it is saying, well, you know, it was 60-some thousand dollars, now it's 23, maybe it's time for me to get into something I don't understand. We want more transparency. Well, don't sell your father short, but it sounds like people in Michigan do things other than playing euchre also. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they beat Ohio State last year. Oh, so, boy. so there's Those that. Are fighting words. <laughs> and I should clarify that I don't have any crypto assets either. So just to just to be clear, I'm I'm in favor of a regulatory regime that allows people to experiment and innovate. That's what I'm focused on building. Crypto is one area of innovation right now. I would try to come up with some basic disclosures for token offerings. And I would try to come up with some rules around custody of crypto assets, because I think that's an area where there have been a lot of questions. So, And then I would try to, to also come up with some rules around how regulated entities can interact with crypto. And then there's also this ongoing issue of whether or not we can have a Bitcoin exchange-traded product or other digital asset-backed exchange-traded products. And I would simply apply the same standards we apply to other similar products. So I would try to be less arbitrary in that regard. Yeah, I, we here love your, your take on and your very staunch stance on innovation in the market and you know how new things aren't necessarily bad things. Bad things are bad things. Yeah, new things aren't necessarily good or bad, right? And, and so I think we've got to apply the same kind of standards to everything and allow I mean, one, one thing I do worry about, I think you're right, our capital markets are the best in the world, but what we tend to do as a regulator is we get very comfortable dealing with the entities that we're used to and that we know, and so we can put up barriers to entry, and so you don't get that same level of dynamism that you would get if we were a little bit more flexible, so that's something I'm trying to push for inside the agency. Yeah, and there, there can be also an overreaction to things that go wrong. I mean, specifically talking about yes. SPACs now. And I know you've opined on this and, and hey, SPACs were great for an activist short seller for about two years because, I mean, I guess you're not going to like the, I'll name names, but that's part of my show. Anything Chamath Powell, Back Jesus went into, it was a great thing for us to look at or, or some of the others. They made a ton of money. It doesn't necessarily mean SPACs are bad. And that we need to just like stop this vehicle from from existing through, you know, excessive rulemaking. But as you had pointed out, I think 
maybe just better disclosure rules, which was the biggest problem with SPACs to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I think that was that was the area I would have loved to see us focus all of our efforts on is just trying to get the disclosure right. There are some complexities around how SPACs work. And so making sure that particularly retail investors are able to get the information they need. But this blanket condemnation of a particular way of taking a company from the private markets and putting it into the public market just doesn't seem very productive to me. And I, I, I think that, that our rule sort of had the, the, it's a rule proposal, so we're still getting comments on it. But the way I read it, and, and I'll be interested as I go through the comments to see if, if people agree, and, and some people I've heard from already have suggested that they see it the same way, it seemed to me an attempt to use a rulemaking to stop people from using this avenue toward, for taking companies into the public market. Diversity of, of approaches is important here, and I think that's what we need to underscore. But you're right, more disclosure was, would be helpful. And I think that is part of what the, the proposal did. Sure. I think there were like two or three things that really would have helped in a big way as SPACs. I mean, like, you know, as the safe harbor and, you know, some of these SPACs coming out, listen, we make shoes and our TAM is everybody with a foot. And so, <laughs> therefore, the $5 million we do this year will be $5 trillion next year. That, that kind of thing. Yeah, we could just easily put a stop to that rather than stopping the vehicle altogether. I think we also should be asking questions about whether our normal route, the IPO route, is calibrated. The rules around that are calibrated properly. We should think about whether we should be looking all the time to see whether we need to adjust that. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why companies are thinking twice about going public. Of course, that's a bigger issue than just SPACs or IPOs or direct listings. I mean, cost is, is, is a big issue, and IPOs are you know, arguably the most costly, which is why you had the Jobs Act IPO and reverse mergers, of course, were the rave 10, 12 years ago. And then, you know, you had the kind of a, for lack of a better phrase, the China hustle, uh, where you had all these reverse mergers that came in and, and there was a fraudulent market. But I mean, people forget companies like Berkshire Hathaway were a reverse merger. So that in and of itself as a vehicle shouldn't be stifled. Yeah, separating the vehicle from the specifics of a particular transaction is important or a particular company is important. So what's in the news of the last couple of years and, and is the popular thing to talk about is how do we protect retail investors? I don't know. And I don't think anybody really does uh, other than kind of really changing things on a wholesale basis. But you look at GameStop, you look at AMC, and you know, when you talk about protecting retail investors, on some levels, not, not all, but how do you protect the willfully uninformed uh, that just don't want to know? How can you do that? And, and really, the risk is, I think, the amount of passive investment we have in the market right now. Since the global financial crisis is probably 90% of trading, I guess, it's done a total flip. Have you got a view on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to take issue with the premise of uninformed, willfully uninformed. I mean, look, I think the markets, our markets in the United States, are markets for everyone in the United States to participate in. And a lot of people are going to decide that they want to participate through a passive uh, fund or, or maybe through an active fund, right? But they're going to decide that they want to have someone else do the work for them. But there are others who, who are going to decide that they want to trade individual 
stocks. And that's, that's a perfectly fine thing for people to be doing. And as always, I want people to be able to get the information they need to make their decisions, but the, their participation in the markets is certainly welcome. I do worry about the, the thing that you mentioned in terms of the passive, um, the large amounts of passive. When there is a large amount of passive in activity in the market, then presumably active investors can come in and make money, right? right. But it is, is a change in the markets when you see so much capital flowing sort of in tandem. And, and that's something that I think we have to do some more thinking about as a regulator, I'm not sure what there's there's a regulatory answer to that, but it's certainly something that has changed the dynamics of how the markets move. And so it's something that we need to be thinking about. If I'm looking at it, both the Volcker rule, which you know stopped a lot of active trading via banks, and I know that that caused the global financial crisis was a lot of risk taking there. But when you go too far, then you've taken an active, a huge active participant out of the market. and some of the retirement accounts that are all, I mean, I, I just remember growing up and not everybody that was in their 70s and 80s was invested in the market and that was okay. Now everybody basically in that age group in some way is invested in the market and is an active player, whether they know it or not, there's no real money left in the banks, right? Gaining interest on a CD or safe kind of money that way. And that worries me. Well, I mean, everyone's looking for a return, right? And, and the interest rates have not been very high of late. No, they have not. But I do worry about, you know, again, I'll bring up my 78-year-old father and these, all of these people just being tied to the market, so much to the market. Where are they going to go? Venture capital, real estate, things of that nature? No. So they're still going to be in the market and there's not the, it's not the safest environment to be in when passive investing being so big, it's just inflow of money you buy and passive investing, right? And outflows of money you sell at any price on the buying and selling side of it. You know, I've heard it described, Mike Green, who, was, who had a great description of this, talked about like, this is driving a car uphill with no brakes. Now, it works just fine as long as you, your foot is on the accelerator and you can let it off for a little bit and you'll have a dip and you'll, you know, you're fine if you put your foot back on the accelerator. But you, when you run out of hill and it starts to go down, it's not really fine that passive investing is going to sell irrespective of any price. Well, I mean, so I guess I'm of the view that having more Americans participate in the capital markets is a good thing. Now, people have to think about their individual portfolios and how they're diversified. And, and as they grow older, they have to think about when they're going to need the money. And when they're younger, they need to be thinking about when they're going to need the money and for what. And so you have to take all that into account. Again, I, I think you're, you're right to point to the large amounts of money in passive funds, which have been for many Americans, a very good investment vehicle, but you're right to think about how the market dynamics have changed because of all that money and passive funds. And so it is something that I think about. Okay. Well, hopefully it's something, you know, I think I know you think about it. Hopefully the commission is thinking about it as well. Yes, we are. Okay. And uh, there can be maybe more of a balance because, you know, I mean, you talk about 12 years ago and it was totally flipped, right? As far as passive versus active managers. And it's the death of active management, right? Like everybody says, like, you know, by the time you're done paying the fees and they don't have as good a returns, but there's nothing nimble left to it. 
But I mean, ultimately, doesn't the market push for corrections if the balance is wrong, right? I mean, there. I think that's the question. Is it really a regulatory solution that comes in and addresses addresses that? And certainly, every investor needs to think what's best for herself. She, you know, she's got to figure out whether putting her money in a passive fund um, or an active fund is, is is right for her. Well, over the long haul, the answer would be a passive fund, and and that and I think that's why we are where we are. Like when you look at the stats, that's why people are like, if I, you know, I don't do this for a living. I'm just going to go in a passive fund. The worry is, you mentioned correction. What is a correction? 10 and 20%, that's a correction to me. 50, uh, you know, something greater systemic. That's what I worry about. I don't think I've ever recovered from 2008. Maybe that worry has always just been on me. Well, I would think that that worry, I think that cloud is over a lot of us who who saw things in 2008 that we wish we could unsee. <laughs> So many things I wish I could unsee, Carl. <laughs> one thing that, that has grinded me over the last 10 years as I've become a vocal critic of at least one company at a time is no matter what happens, no matter how egregious the fraud is, independent directors who are really there to represent the shareholder really have no accountability that I've seen. And maybe I'm missing it. Maybe you'll point out you know, issues where ind- independent directors have paid a price for falling down on the job, which seems to happen more than, you know, maybe I notice more, but I just don't see the accountability in the independent directors on, on some of these companies that have committed egregious accounting fraud or just outright fraud. Well, I'm going to punt a little bit because board governance issues are state law issues, not, not SEC issues, though we do try in many different ways to, um, to take that issue away from states. But I think it's really important to remember that governance issues are really best dealt with by states. And then if, if, if one state doesn't think that another state is doing it right, they can set up their, their laws differently. And it, it allows for some competition among the states on governance issues. Wow, that was a hell of a punt. That was an, that was, that was a, that was an Ohio State 80-yarder punt. Well, but I mean, this is the reason, right? We in Ohio are different from you in Michigan, and we can have different, different laws around corporate governance. I guess I never looked at it that way. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out for me, and I'll, I'll dwell on that a little more. I just think that uh, some of these companies are just global. And, you know, I view them that way anyway, not that they're, they may be domiciled in Nevada or New York or wherever, but them being a kind of global player, I I don't really think about the fact that they're incorporated in Delaware matters more than that. Well, and and, I mean, to, to, to unpunt a little bit, I guess, to the extent that there are securities laws violations by a, a company, one of the things that we look at is who at the company was responsible for it. Right. And sometimes that includes, you know, looking at what the board of directors did. Often it's, we're looking at management. Right. Um, but sometimes it's looking at what happened on the board in the boardroom and, and whether there was responsibility there as well. So you can have situations where we're holding someone liable, whether it's a director or an officer at a company for a role, but that would be tied to securities violations rather than, you know, the kind of thing you seem to be um, talking about, which is, is more of a governance issue. Yeah, no, I was talking about fraud. And, and I think that that can be governance, especially when you when it's accounting fraud. Yeah. And I mean, that, you know, those are those are the kinds of cases we bring all the time. 
Right. Um, it, it, it is often difficult to identify an individual or a group of individuals who's responsible because mm-hmm. sometimes it's spread out over many people. But but we do look to hold individuals accountable because I think that's one of the most effective ways to encourage other officers and directors to be um, careful with the company and, and to follow the law. Good stewards of our capital. Exactly. Yeah, I've often said companies uh, do not commit fraud. That never has a company committed fraud. Do, yeah. Right. Uh, the people running it do. And then they'll use uh, shareholder money to sue me, which <laughs> I wish you could work on that while, while the commissions talk, even when they're wrong. But that's fine. We're ready. Well, sometimes they also use shareholder money to pay a penalty so that there's no right. individual accountability. And that is, I think, very problematic. Yep. And, you know, sometimes I, I fear that we we at the SEC um, make that easier because for us, when we announce uh, an enforcement action, if there's a large penalty against a company, it can get a a big headline. If there's uh, individual accountability, that doesn't always get the same headlines. Talking about that, that, that's interesting because sometimes you'll, and I won't mention names here because I know you hate that, uh, but let's let's talk about a bank that maybe paid a $250 million fine for for fraud. And it was actually probably called that. And nobody went to jail. Maybe some people got fired, but they paid $250 million. What occurs to me is this is what they're saying to, to the SEC. We'll give you $250 million. That's what management has agreed to. But if you try to put one of the people in management in jail, we'll spend $500 million fighting you in court. And that's a tough pill to swallow on the budget that enforcement has or that the entire commission has in the entire year when you're fighting these institutions that have that kind of firepower? No, I mean, this is definitely a dynamic that I worry about, um, that it is ultimately shareholder money that's being paid out for these fines, for these penalties. And, um, and of course, the company wants to protect individuals, but I think we have to also put responsibility on the people where responsibility should lie. And so it's a dynamic we have to be aware of and push back against. But again, the allure of large penalties for us is also quite uh, strong. So sure. So that's why I'm sometimes arguing, why are we penalizing the shareholders who already were defrauded? Why aren't we instead trying to get the um, executives who conducted the fraud to take responsibility. Now, we're obviously not going to put anyone in jail because we don't have the authority to do that. Well, you've got a sister organization right there. It's pretty good at rolling them up and doing that for you, which will bring me to another question. But I I do want to ask you, that is a very, very good question. When you say, I'm asking the question, why, why are we doing it this way? And why are we not necessarily, we're double penalizing shareholders. I won't tell anybody else. Just tell me. What does that person say when you point something out so obvious that they, it can't be argued with? Well, I think, look, presenting the other side of the argument says, okay, look, Hester, if you want shareholders to put better directors into their jobs, who will then put better managers into their jobs, then when there's a fraud, take a bunch of money away from the shareholders and it'll tell them next time they should be more careful. 
Now, the counter to that is that we sometimes take the money that we took from the shareholders, we filter it through a process, and we give it back to shareholders through a process called the fair fund process. So it's a little bit like you're taking money out of one pocket, putting it into the other, and taking a little bit out for the costs of transmitting it. So there, there aren't good answers in this area, but that's one of the reasons why I, I'm not as enthusiastic about corporate penalties as my colleagues. Yeah. Some of my colleagues. I don't speak for them. Well, we disagree with them. We agree with you. Just so we're on the record there. Talking about the, the makeup of, of the SEC now and, and their hiring, which I think is great, you know, uh, more Bitcoin specialists, I guess, whether the regulation is there or not, having specialists in that that area is good. What about real systems specialists that, I mean, because things are moving so fast now, Commissioner, high frequency trading, and you marry that with AI, somebody tweets something and the market moves. The commission mainly being made up, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm going to say from my interaction there and, and stopping by every once in a while, we're lawyers and accountants, a lot of it, right? A lot of economists too. An economist. Well, yeah, lawyer, lawyers who are also economists uh, <laughs> and, and accountants. But it seems like these days, computer systems engineers that understand this a- algorithmic trading, certainly when you have uh, markets like China as well, where like, how are you going to catch insider trading there and hold anybody accountable? It's a huge market. I know how you do it here through systems. But are we making an effort to hire more of these type of people to the, to the commission? Well, we certainly have in, in my time at the commission and, and watching the commission from the outside when I, between the time I was here as staff and the time I came back as commissioner, we've made a lot of strides in terms of technology. We have better technology and sophisticated people who know how to use it. But I think that you're absolutely right about the need to um, include and bring onto the staff more market experts and more experts who, frankly, the markets now are run by these people who are who are really technologists and engineers. Yeah. And so those are the kind of people that I think we need to, to uh, hire more of. And I would like to see us figuring out a way to attract more of those people to, to come and work here, because I think you're absolutely right. I would like to say patriotism would, would bring them through the door, but I think, I think that and, and a lot of money generally attracts that because it's so competitive, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the problems is that there are a lot of limitations around trading. And, and I mean, that's a problem, but it's, there's also a clear reason for having those rules. And so that, I think, dissuades uh, some people from coming here, but I think it's something that we really have to work on. There are two types of systems that I see that are just like, I don't know how you can lose. If you own like the best high frequency trading shops, I don't think they ever lose money. And this deal for order flow, which has been, been talked about, I don't know how much you can say, because I guess, I guess it's a, it's a work in progress, but notionally thinking about it, if you're getting something for free, you are the product and your information, your deal, your order flow. And trading ahead of that seems like a no-lose situation. There is work being done here on equity market structure. There's always work. Every chairman comes in and wants to do something around equity market structure. And this, this chair is no different. And so he's announced that that's something that his staff is is working on. Um, and so we'll see what happens. My bottom line is that the equity markets work quite well. 
There are issues, but they work quite well. And on the whole, retail investors have never had it better than they do now in terms of the cost of trading, the assurance that you'll be able to trade when you want to trade. So I think we should be very careful not to upset that apple cart in a way that ends up being worse for retail investors. One of my big complaints about the equity markets in the United States is that they're extremely rules-based. And I never have been one that believes that markets need intense micromanagement from the government in order to work. So if I were remaking these from scratch, I would certainly have a much more free market approach than what we have now. But when you try to pull a string and pull one rule out in a highly intricate rules-based market, it can have adverse consequences that you didn't anticipate. So I think we have to be very careful in whatever it is we do. And I trust that the staff is working hard on trying to figure out how to make changes without doing anything that would have adverse consequences. From conversations I'm having with you now and I've seen in the past, you'd like to see less rules and more more of a free market, a, a counterparty kind of market. But you do worry that, that that could be a problem pulling them out. Yeah. I mean, in the 1970s, Congress came in and they said to the SEC, set up a, you need to facilitate a national market system. Why? <laughs> Don't markets kind of, you know, when someone wants to buy and someone wants to sell, they'll come together and there'll be a market. You don't need the government to say, okay, buyer, here's a seller, you know, you guys can meet together. I think they would figure out how to do that without the help of, of the SEC. Like thousands of years ago, that was figured <laughs> yes. out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would think so too. But the minute I think there's too many rules, nobody asked me which one I would take out. That's the really tough it question. So I, I totally get it there, though I think there are too many rules. So there. <laughs> and, you know, around... 10Ks and disclosures, I'm of the opinion as I read way too many of these daily and weekly and whatever, that a K and a Q optimally should be talking about what a company does and their financial condition straight in, in such a straightforward way that the retail investor, let's say, or anybody can understand what's going on, what, what they make a widget and this is how many widgets they sell and this is you know how much they're charged for whatever. And so much now, they're so worded and parsed so that at the end of it, you don't really understand what they do. And so many disclosures and safe harbors and, and nobody's really taking responsibility in the end. I know the SEC doesn't buy that if there's a problem. Do we think we could get to a better form of writing a 10K that's more straightforward for investors? I mean, we live in a country that has a lot of regulations around those disclosures and a lot of litigation. And so that combination is a very bad combination for clarity. Um, you know, you don't, you don't end up with, with clear, concise disclosures when people are concerned all the time, when companies are concerned that they're going to face litigation. But rest assured, we're going to make it better by adding a whole new set of disclosures around climate that is going to rival the existing disclosures. What um, what a segue. I mean, literally, it was the next thing, <laughs> is this ESG. And, I, and I've already touched on my view of governance, especially at the independent board of directors level, but the ESG part of it is like supercharged kind of disclosures. And I'm just looking forward to 
not the 100 page 10K, but the 300 page 10K, talking about how environmentally safe we all are from this company. And how much money did they spend putting this together? What are your views on on ESG and the disclosures that are going to be mandated for companies? Why? Well, so we we have a proposal out on climate, and I, I suspect that we'll see some other requirement proposals around other kinds of ESG um, type disclosures. And and so we've gotten a ton of comments in on this. It's a very very uh, heated topic on 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 all sides of the the issue, and I'm looking through the comments and talking to folks. So, so I, I will say that my views are all preliminary on this, but my concern is that when we start requiring disclosures that are not tied to the long-term financial value of the company, then we're using the SEC's disclosure system for something it was not intended to be used for. And so what I've been trying to, to, to remind us of as an agency is sticking to our knitting is good for investors. It's good for the capital markets. Those hot button social and political issues really are better resolved in civil society and Congress, state legislatures. They really don't belong in the corporate disclosure documents and corporate proxy fights. So I think it's I think it's unfortunate that we are at this stage where we're, we're using our disclosure system to serve the needs of, of all sorts of interested parties that are not the investor. Right. I don't even think we've defined E, S, or G. Uh, maybe a no, little bit of G. No, they're changing all the time. Right. So, uh, I mean, how there can be disclosures on so- terms that are not defined, uh, good luck to us all with that. It's just, it just busy right. work. I mean, I think the important thing to remember is that our existing rules are tend to be principles-based, right? The goal is to, to say to a company just what you said that the, the disclosure is for. It's, it's to present a picture of the company so that an investor can understand what, are, what, what is the economic reality of that company, what are their thoughts on what the risks and the, the opportunities that are out there for them are, but you know, it's the material risks that we want to know about. And those are going to differ from company to company. For some companies, climate is going to be a huge material risk and something that they spend a lot of time talking about. For other companies, not so. And so allowing us to have this principles-based approach is what allows companies to make the disclosures that their investors need. Agreed. Just wrapping up here, I'm conscious of your time and, and so appreciative that you joined us. The SEC tends to talk about a subject or something like ESG that's coming up or what deal for order flow, whatever, and they put it out for public comment, which is great and continue to do that. But is there, is there ever a round table that's kind of put together of experts and specialists who are actually doing the work on a daily basis and saying, what are you seeing out there? Give us feedback as a, as a council of actual experts. Well, so we do have advisory committees. We have a small business advisory committee and an investor advisory committee, those are standing committees that exist and can, can provide us recommendations and, and thoughts. But we, we used to have more roundtables than we do these days. I think they're very valuable. We can bring together a group of people who are knowledgeable. We can throw out some questions for them to discuss. Sometimes the discussions get very heated. Love those. <laughs> exactly. 
But for me, those are very valuable conversations because I'm not an expert in everything. And I we can benefit from, from the ex- expertise. And as we talked about before, we don't have enough of those market experts in the building. So the idea that we can go outside and bring these these people together for a discussion, I think it's a it's a powerful tool we should be using more of. And so I hope that on all of these topics that we're talking about, that we will stop and, and hold some roundtables and have some, it, you know, the, the other benefit of a roundtable is that you don't just get a static comment letter, but you get one commenter reacting to what another commenter says in real time. Right. And that's very valuable. The banter, the feedback, the nuance exactly. that's completely lost in the written word. I don't know when that was a time where that was used more than it is now. Well, even a few years ago, we had more of these things. I mean, we've had roundtables on proxy, on market data. We we had a fixed income advisory committee, which was also helpful. Um, that was that was shorter lived. But you know, we've had roundtables on lots of different issues. And it's just kind of stopped over the last few years. I, I hope you push for it to go forward. I think I think getting that you're right, that banter, that feedback, that looking somebody in the eye and, and, and understanding what they mean just from that dialogue would be important. All right. Last question. Uh, everybody would hate me if I didn't, if, if I didn't at least ask it, is it true that everybody at the commission hates activist short sellers? <laughs> no, it's not true. Okay. Um, that took way too long. I to know. Answer, right? really had to think about it. <laughs> because I'll tell you every activist short seller, hates every other activist short seller. So we wouldn't blame you. One of the things that I, I try to remind us of is that the, the market is diverse and has a, a diverse set of market participants. And there's there's a balance, right, that comes from them pushing against each other. Now, we, we have to think about how do we maintain that balance, making sure there's appropriate transparency and making sure people are held accountable for things when they when they violate our rules. But there is there is a valuable dynamic. I'm a big believer in the markets as being places where information comes in and and um, is processed in a way that then makes everyone more knowledgeable. Right? That's the whole the whole way a market functions is a buyer comes to the markets and the seller comes, and through that dynamic, you see what the market price is. You see how people value something. And so that's playing out every day in our market. And it's important to have people coming to that marketplace with different views based on the different work they've done, the different experiences they've had, the different knowledge they have. And that's why markets are so good at allocating capital, because you are drawing on the knowledge of everyone in the marketplace. Everyone has something to say in that marketplace. And so I think that's the dynamic that that makes markets go round. Well, that's why our market's so good, because I can point to many markets where a negative opinion is not welcome and you get thrown in jail or, or whatever. And that's, that's where you don't really have a market. And thank goodness that's not the case here. It's very much so changed, Commissioner, in the last 10 years that there really wasn't this platform where, where an activist could write their opinion and people would pay attention. If you think 15 years ago, nobody did that except for maybe a newspaper, Barron's or the Wall Street Journal. And now there are all these, you know, you, you could call them a blogger, you could call them whatever, their own activist short shop, where, you know, they could put their opinion out and move the market. And I could certainly understand why the commission would want to get their hands around that better. I, mean, I don't know why that's not happened sooner, 
I'm not for more rules, but if there are rules to be put out there, I mean, people just want to know what they are and then they can play by them. But for the, you know, I'm thinking 2010, 11, and 12, going around this and paying very high priced lawyers and asking them, can I write my opinion about this company and have a financial stake in it? And I would generally get, it's a gray area. That'll be $2,000, you know, I'm, or, or something to that effect. Well, I think people are wanting to know when someone writes something, what their financial stake is. And sure. I think that's certainly understandable. And I think there are concerns about people who are, who have a financial stake and maybe using someone else to, to write something. And that's something that we're concerned about too, right? That, that you know, people are upfront about where they're coming from when, when they're speaking, right? Disclosures are important. And it's important when you're when you're touting a crypto asset to tell people that you're getting paid for doing it. It's important when you're touting a stock to say you're getting paid for doing it. It's important if if you're writing something negative to say I have a stake in this as well. So I think that's that's our role is to try to work on transparency. Well, I wish you the best with that and and everything else. You have an incredibly difficult job. It's ever changing. Rules coming at you. Rules wanting to go out new markets developing like crypto to, uh, that happens so fast that the commission has to catch up. I think overall, we all do a good job. Our government and our regulation, listen, you know, you can always run into a hostile regulator and think that you're being picked on, but in general, it works much better than anywhere else. And, uh, you know, I thank you for the service that you provide for our country and for the markets. Any last words on, on the markets yourself or where people can follow you? No, I, I just, my door is open. I love talking to people and hearing from people, whether they agree or disagree with me. So um, you can email commissionerpurse at sec.gov if you want to set up a meeting. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at testerpurse. But you can find me easily on Twitter and, and so happy to engage and welcome people's comment letters as well. And thank you for taking the time to have this conversation today. No, it's my pleasure. And it is uh, just at Hester Purse on Twitter. That's, that's how important uh, our commissioner is. And she has 90,000 followers, or she's almost at 90. You could, you could be the 90,000. There's a lot of valuable information there. And I appreciate the open door policy. After this, this airs, you may not appreciate saying that. <laughs> We'll see. You'll have to you'll have to come back as a returning champion and let us know. Good luck to you and thank you for joining us. We appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. Door. You better not let him